Welcome to the Highway Hi-Fi Podcast, where we go track by track through the underbelly of music history, using research and trivia to locate the roots of our obsession with vinyl records. I'm Joe. And I'm Ryan. And congratulations, you have found the internet's finest podcast for punk music beyond the Cuyahoga. Today we're going to go ahead and skip trivia and jump right into our turntable talk. Everybody's talking at me I don't hear a word they're saying Only the echoes of my mind No one man can make a scene, but perhaps one can be an embodiment of it. A representation of what makes a place and its music intertwined. Like his beloved Cleveland itself, the emblematic and occasionally problematic Peter Lochner was on the fringes of the American music canon. A shadowy presence in a shadowy place at the time when rock and roll was dark, smart, and powerful. But that is the thing about underground music. It can happen in the most unlikely places. And underground music needs people with vision and determination to make it live. The real tragedy of Peter Lochner, beyond his self-destructive tendencies and untimely death, is that he is often remembered most for his self-destructive tendencies and untimely death. Though his importance has been well-documented in his circles of influence, his reflective writing, his otherworldly guitar playing, and the scarce snippets of music that were made available through bootlegs and a single disjointed compilation, his status as a rock and roll victim and burnt-out luminary overshadow the music itself. Thankfully, Smogvale Records has remedied this situation by releasing a beautiful new 5LP box set of Peter Lochner material, containing mostly lo-fi home tapes, demos, and live recordings. The music, like the man, is complicated, dizzyingly ambitious, starkly rich, and pushing boundaries in different directions. In the wake of his short and troubled existence, many of his lyrics seem prescient, but heard on their own, they're poignant, moving, and real. His choice of covers, many that would raise eyebrows from those who recognize Lochner as a scorching proto-punk guitar madman, show the depth of sonic inspirations. Robert Johnson, Jimmy Rogers, Bob Dylan, Van Morrison, Michael Hurley, The Modern Lovers, Television, and of course, Lou Reed. The same thread of misunderstood brilliance runs through Lochner as with these artists who balance zeitgeist terroir and anachronistic relevance. This compelling collection allows Lochner's music to be evaluated from a different perspective, one that gives equal weight to the man as a musician rather than as an icon. Gorgeously packaged and meticulously curated over many years, the box set gives the time and care that Peter Lochner has earned. The songs, often rescued from boxes in basements, are mastered with attention and sound as good as they possibly can be, considering the sources, acoustics, and locations. The background noises, tape hiss, and crowd chatter often serve the music almost as an additional instrument, a reminder of the gritty origins of the recordings. The biography written by today's guest, Nick Blakey, illuminates his life just enough to give it some shape, but not enough to lay bare all that Lochner was. It's doubtful that any amount of research could master that task. There's no doubt that Peter Lochner was an incendiary spark for the Cleveland alternative rock scene of the 70s. He played in a gang of short-lived bands, including Mr. Charlie, Cinderella Backstreet, Peter and the Wolves, The Blues Drivers, and Friction. 
Bands changed wildly as Lochner's brain refused to sit still, engaging in new sounds far faster than his bandmates could keep up with. Of course, most of his renown comes from being a member of both the proto-punk Master Blasters' Rocket from the Tombs and then his short-lived stint in their seminal art-punk offshoot, Para Ubu. His other major claim to fame, or perhaps infamy, was his musical writing, which spurred a tumultuous friendship with fellow critic Lester Bangs. That writing, though different than Bangs, has a similar tone of deep personal involvement with the music, a messy sense of belonging, and blending a biography, fiction, and criticism with a sardonic and nihilistic bent. He engaged easily with his audience because he was his audience. Here's some of what he wrote about the Modern Lover's self-titled album, taken from the unfairly impressive hardbound liner notes from this new box set. Velvets meets Stooges meets Doors meets Boy Next Door, who has a sinus infection, though not from nasty habits. Most of the reputed $12,000 dropped by Warners on John Cale to produce Modern Lovers demos must have gone up somebody's nose, but not Jonathan Richmond's. The Modern Lovers album is good stuff. It's the album Transformer could have been. And here's some of his thoughts on television's marquee moon. To me, the term punk rock means nothing. If it's supposed to mean rock music played with a deliberate lack of finesse and intelligence, it means less than nothing when applied to television. Chords haven't chimed so wild since The Birds, or maybe Love's first album, or ripped and bitten since The Velvets were on Verve, and the lead lines, sometimes angular and unpredictable, yet always conceptually logical. And finally, my favorite of his many takes on many Lou Reed albums. Here's a letter to Lou about Rock and Roll Heart. Dear Lou, honest to God, I played this album at least 46 times all the way through, listened to it in every possible condition I could put myself into, went to see the show with 40-odd video screens wanking behind you, have only been drunk twice and filled my volume script once since it came out, quit seeing my shrink, I got a steady job. All I can say is, your LP is less tedious than Stevie Wonder's latest, but that's like saying Novocaine is more effective than Procaine. I don't feel anything. I find it as painless and boring as modern dentistry. Two questions. One, where did you hide the guitars? Two, what in the name of modern science is a rock and roll heart? Other whispers and stories followed him, as with most enigmatic personas. He hauled back the most important writing and music from New York City to evangelize punk in Cleveland. He was slated to replace Richard Lloyd in television. He got kicked off the stage by Patti Smith, or his stalking Lou Reed in New York. In 1977, he succumbed to acute pancreatitis at the age of only 24, a product of the ridiculously hard living. He left his final recordings on a single cassette made in his bedroom with an acoustic guitar and a six-pack of Genesee beer. Included in the box set is the final disc, Nocturnal Digressions. The songs are haunting and not only because they were produced on the night before he died. Today, we're playing an interview with Nick Blakey, a Northwestern Ohio music archivist and a producer on the box set who spent a decade working on it. He speaks about what he has learned about Peter Lochner, the sometimes grueling process of culling hours of tapes to a five-LP set, his perspective on hero worship, and a myriad of fascinating stories about his years as a fan, record collector, bootleg trader, musician, researcher, writer, and archivist. 
Nick was incredibly insightful and passionate about music, and we're thankful for his time, his wit, his knowledge, and his willingness to give us an inside look on building a legacy through vinyl. Smogville, the stuff I do with Smogville is actually covering my degree, which is, you know, kind of amazing in 2018 America, or even the world, really, that you can you can be doing writing and research, and as well as audio work, uh, because I work directly with Sam Abash, who does the pre-mastering and restoration and fixing work before we send it off to Jeff and Maria at Peerless. But we work on that together. So that's a glorious thing. Uh, but my, uh, I, I, unfortunately, it's kind of like uh, Carlito's way with Al Pacino, in which he said, you know, that I'm a booking agent, and I have been since the 90s. But it's, it's like, you know, this Every time I try to get out, they pull me back in. You know, I just can't. <laughs> but I mean, I've worked retail, I've worked security, I worked in a complaints department for three weeks at a phone company, which led to me uh, just walking out, uh, walking to the boss's office and saying, you know, I'm all done. But um, yeah, mostly it's 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 the booking agent stuff and then uh, the retail. Oh, I don't work retail anymore. Um, but yeah, so that's, you know, I don't think all of us, all of us do that. All of us work other jobs um, and do this where we can fit it. Uh, so that's not why it took 10 years, Joe, just so you know. <laughs> <laughs> you know that's not why. Um, but yeah, so it's, it's sort of a, uh, I'm sort of on a seesaw, running between the two sides. If you if you can visualize that, mm-hmm. but um, you know, it's 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 nice to have work in something that I would be probably doing anyways. If that makes any exactly. sense. Exactly. Yeah, that okay. makes absolute perfect sense. That's exactly what Ryan and I were doing with this. The podcast we do is just basically uh, trying to find underrepresented aspects of music history that we love and it started mm-hmm. with just the, the two of us finding a topic doing doing research for a few weeks on it and then telling the other one about it and then we figured why don't we, why don't we just record this um so, <laughs> so that's well, kind of as i told you to right and as i told you online you know anyone who names their podcast after an old leg label has uh, got my heart <laughs> in uh, Maybe that's not what you did, but I, it, you know, I had a, I think I had a Beatles bootleg live in any town on Highway High Five. So, you I know, think that their biggest, the biggest one of theirs that I remember was the Van Morrison one. They did a really important Van Morrison one. I don't know if it was the Astral Weeks or if it was the um, contractual obligation one, but they did a, they did a good, a big one of those from what I remember. Mm. Oh, God. The, you know, bang demos. That, those are insane. That's like performance art. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, actually, bootlegs are a big part of the reason, even how I got into this stuff, because I always felt it was sort of a, and this does relate actually to our topic and probably what you do as well. You know, bootlegs have sort of represented this alternate history of of music history. You know, it records that bands put out themselves that, um, you know, I, I can't say like they didn't get released otherwise. I mean, we're talking about like Spunk by the Sex Pistols or the 
the RCA demos, both Joy Vision, which came out as a Warsaw, or the the third um, Pavlov's Dog record, you know, which got rejected by the label. So, you know, but also, you know, live recordings. And I always think about like the Beatles at the Hollywood Bowl, like they put out a complete 64 tape and how it was so much more satisfying than what Capital had, Capital EMI had offered up, which was the combo of the two shows. But I really kind of wanted to find out more of this secret history, this alternate history. And uh, that put me into the bootleg circuit of tape trading. And I got things like, you know, Time's Up by the Buzzcocks, the demos from 76 before they that came out. That was great. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And then, like, the wire demos that they did for the album that never got made between Pink Flag and There's Missing, stuff like Not About to Die. No, 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 sorry, not that one. Uh, you know, stuff like uh, Stairmade, Save the Bullet, and they ended up not... That stuff's all since come out, but they they decided not to do that because Colin, I think, said he would have been a son of Pink Flag, and they didn't feel the need to repeat themselves, which they've never done in their career. So, which you know, they, so they admire. I wanted, I would, you know, I wanted, I wish they would have released them, but I like the reason that they didn't. Right. And I mean, but still, at least they have come out. I mean, the record that I wish that they had made was the one that would have followed 154 or 154, whatever you want to do, uh, call it. Uh, you know, stuff like, um, it's the stuff that they were doing at the Notre Dame Hall uh, concert that came out on um, Document and Eyewitness. You know, stuff like Safe. And uh, some of that stuff later turned up on Collins' solo records. And that stuff just to me, like, it's totally fascinating. But that leads to, of course, you know, the first Collins solo and Dome and all that kind of stuff. And I'm getting way out of Ohio, so let me swing back. Um, <laughs> I, I, I'm about 15 years now. Please, <laughs> I can get on What's that? So throw that Joe. I get on. No, Dan no, this is great. Show. I love. Um, that was that was when he was on 4AD. Is that right? When it, his solo yes. stuff. So, yeah. Okay. Mhm. Okay. Mhm. And you know, I love all that stuff too. But you know, and um, especially, I, I don't think I worship at the Temple of Bruce Gilbert. So it, I won't make, I won't <laughs> lie about that. Uh, he's also an extraordinarily nice guy. Actually, all of them are. Uh, I had an opportunity to spend some time with them, and I got to know Graham pretty well, and he's a wonderful person. And if you ever meet Graham, be sure to ask him about the Roxy Music Tour that Wired did in 79. Um, Can you – yeah, how did you um, how did you come across or how did you come into meeting them, Just, if you don't mind going into that a little? No, not at all. I – and this sort of – but this is – you know what? You know what, this is related to Lochner, and I will, let me kind of try to do a full circle, and hopefully your listeners aren't like groaning and hitting fast forward. I think stories um, stories like this are exactly what we, what Ryan and I always want to hear, so that's what we're going to, I mean, that's what we okay. want. It, it'll get uh, back where it needs to go. Well, you might have seen this morning, I wrote about this, um, folks, I won't plug it because I don't make money from it, but it, this is actually how Joe and I, or maybe it was Ryan and I, but I, I have a Twitter account called Underground Jukebox, the handle is Cleveland Beyond, that originally sort of started out as sort of an outlet to just talk about all the stuff that I was learning and gathering as part of the Smogville team. 
and Andrew Russ and I, who's the other researcher, met through the bootleg circuit, as did Sam Abbas. And we met, I met them through a gentleman named Michael Sue, who used to be a DJ years and years ago on KBS FM at Davis. And one of his, Mike's most notorious moves was through the bootleg circuit, he got the original Steve Albini mix of In Utero by Nirvana, and he plugged the whole thing one night. And um, so I guess we're all a bit snarky that way, and that we would come across things or we'd go record shows. But I found uh, 390 degrees of simulated stereo at Reckless Records in San Francisco, where I grew up, uh, when I was about 15 or 16, because I had read about Perubu, and they seemed intriguing. And it was a Rolling Stone book, and there was a photo of David Thomas in a suit, sweaty, like singing. And I remember the caption was, David Thomas, funniest man in rock. And just reading about them, I was so intrigued, especially with my bootlegs. This was, I had read that this was a compilation of various live uh, performances, either, you know, audience tapes or samples. So I picked it up because I knew this was kind of my ballpark and I was floored. I, it was, I said, uh, when we did the presentation in Columbus several years ago, um, the, the really wonderful folks from straight to video had asked me some questions and I had said, you know, listening to Perubu was the moment that I realized that I didn't have to live a normal life. I didn't have to go, you know, uh, get a suit and tie job get married, although I'm not married now, but get married, have kids, uh, live in the suburbs, and, you know, smash my head against the wall through, uh, you know, alcohol and uh, rotary club meetings and, and just, you know, die a lot quicker than one needs to be, one needs to as a human being. <clears throat> and it sort of opened up my eyes to the possibilities, and it went from there. I wanted more. So I picked up Dove Housing, I picked up Modern Dance, I saw Erd, and where they do birdies with Mayo Thompson on guitar, and I thought they looked like, I don't know, here they are in suits, and, you know, David's just being goofy, and Tony Mamone and Mayo Thompson look like, you know, CEOs, and I just thought they were like the most badass-looking group I'd seen since the Zeros, you know, which was... Uh, uh, Javier Escobedo's band and mm-hmm. the yep. Alves. Yep. And those guys look so cool on me too. And there's a lot to be said for image and especially when the music matches image. And, you know, on 390 Degrees, there was stuff Lochner and I'm reading about this guy, Peter Lochner. I'm like, who's this guy? And Tim Wright as well. And I had found some DNA recordings like the following year and just was full. Oh, by these folks who, who were these Ohio, you know, Cleveland, um, what, you know, and then I, you know, when I finally saw photos of Peter, it was like, here's this dude in the shade and leather and just like, he looked like the coolest, uh, coolest motherfucker I'd ever, you know, Lou Nida's on rock and roll, maybe since, I don't know, uh, John, De- I thought John Deacon was cool. You know, Queen, I thought he was just like, wow, this guy's like, you know, really cool. John Entwistle, too. You know, he's 
guys who were just sort of holding down the fort. And uh, I thought Young Jet was cool. I thought Alita Ford was cool. Um, and so it was sort of that. And getting into the bootleg circuit, you'd meet other people who thought these guys were cool. And you'd get recordings. And I, I received um, Perugo at the Mistake in 76, which eventually got released as Shapes of Things. I got Nocturnal Digressions. And a few other scattered things, Rocket from the Tunes. I got turned on by my friend Peter Conrad, who he said, Oh, if you like Perubu and the Dead Boys, you'll like this. And it was extraordinary. I remember listening to Rocket from the Tunes in my mother's kitchen for the first time and hearing that version of 30 Seconds Over Tokyo and then blew away the version that I that Perubu had done on the 45. Um, because I could comprehend it more. It was coming yeah. from a raw and more rock and roll more punk rock place, if you will, proto-punk rock. Uh, so what I started to do, because I wanted more, and because I was precocious, is I would open up the phone book, or I'd call 411. Was it 555 Is that the number? <laughs> and um, I would look up people and try to find them. And... Um, I went to go see Perubu at the Cactus Club in San Jose because I was in San Jose State at the time when they were on the Imago Tour in 93. And it was an extraordinary night for me because I met Scott Krause, David. I met Jim Jones, um, Joe Temple. But Tom Herman and Lenny Bovey were in the audience. And Lenny was Tom's bass player. It was the bass player in Tripod Jimmy, which was Tom's post Perubu band. Have you ever heard them? No, no, I don't know them. They're astounding, uh, especially the second record, Warning All Strangers. Uh, Tom's guitar work in, in Jimmy is just explosive. I mean, it's volcanic. And they kind of do this... It's hard to say. It's it's like they're 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 sort of like the Minutemen, but says that he died of funk. And I don't mean like White funk. Uh, I mean, to me, good white funk is like early a certain ratio. But I mean, it's a different kind. It's really hard to explain. But Tom's playing is the way it's, it's going beyond what he did in Ubu. And um, I met them both, and I started hanging out with Tom and Lenny. And I remember going to see Tom, and I'm about like 18, 19, I'm 18. And he had a stack of photos we went through, and he had a photo of this guy on stage with long hair, looking like a ghost. And I remember saying, who's that? And he goes, oh, that's Peter. That's Peter towards the end. And Tom's unfortunately lost that photo, but um, yeah, it just, he, he looked scary. Um, and so I was further intrigued, and Tom had some tapes, and it just went from there. Uh, David Thomas put me in touch with Jim Jones, who put me in touch with Jim Ellis, who posed Clee. And I got I got sort of like okayed by everybody. They all said, oh, this guy's okay. You know, he's not trying to exploit us. And um, it went from there. I, Jim gave me recordings of Mirrors and Electric Eels. Um, and just all this stuff, you know, blew my mind because it also led to my appreciation because learning about who they were playing with 
it led to my appreciation you know, uh, of mirrors and sirens, but also electric eels and F-blank X. And you know, I was also already a fan of Devo. Uh, the, the first record I ever bought was a used copy of Freedom of Choice for $3 when I was, uh, I think, eight years old because I had birthday money. And I said, that's what I want. So, um, you know, then that leads to 15, 60, 75, the numbers band, uh, the Rubber City Rebels, Bizarro's, Chai Pig, Tim Huey, um, mostly Mr. Stress Blues Band and Jimmy Lay, but also a group called groups like Don Young's Production, who played with Ubu Bunch, who are one of the, the most underrated groups from that era, who I think I'm the only one that really loves them because every time I play the single for people, they go, oh, this isn't that special. And I'm like, don't you hear the time shift three times in this song? No, this isn't fun. But, you know, uh, I can send you that. But I, I think it's extraordinary. Um, sticky sweet, Sticky Sweet Power Pop with just the darkest, darkest, just despairing lyrics. Um, I wouldn't Don is a, I have not ever heard that. Yeah, and this, this was done in 77 at Suma with uh, Ken Hammond on the board, and, you know, who also did Final Solution and the first two Uru records. But, uh, yeah, and it's got this synth on it, this droning synth in the background sounds a lot like the synth on Decades by Joy Division. <laughs> and um, I played for people, and they're like, ah, and I'm like, ugh. So I'll send that to you, yeah. But it's, you know, that all those groups knew each other and played with each other. The only other scene really know like that, besides, you know, you know, San Francisco and stuff in New York, is, um, you know, Manchester, England. You know, like, you know, Joy of it in the fall, certain ratio, uh, Chris Vandals, and all those groups playing together. And it's just sort of extraordinary to me when these things happen and the groups aren't really competing with each other. They're more holding each other up regardless of the styles of music, you know, sort of like the Ramones and Talking Heads is a great example. Uh, how they toured together, played together a ton. Because it's really kind of this yin-yang thing. So that's what happened then. I'm sort of leading into your first question about Ohio. Um, but I met guys in Wire uh, through a friend who knew them. And this was when they played the Roxy here in Boston in 2000 and he just said hey do you have a car and I said I don't but the guy I'm with does he goes okay do you want to meet wire and and that's where that happened and you, you stay in touch with people you know for the same reasons you know maybe we have recordings where you just when you find out that they're actually really nice people which the case too with one of the buzzcocks in 1993 I managed to get backstage don't ask me how I have no idea and Tony Barber, who was the baseballer at that time, uh, actually had a whole stash of factory record bands, and he had uncirculated tapes of Section 25 and Crispy Ambulance, which I was then able to share with those bands, which was another thing I liked to do, because uh, I thought it was only fair. And yeah. it, all of this is sort of tied in. I mean, this was my life until I started playing in bands, and then that, and I played instruments through my teen years, I've always been a baseball player and a drummer, but that kind of consumed my life, and I kind of drifted away. Although I just I bought way too many records, uh, which I, I I feel like uh, I carry them on my back, you know, <laughs> like the guy on the cover. Uh, I, have, I have a pretty four. good idea of what that's like. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Luckily, I have a very patient and tolerant wife, who also has a lot of records. So, <clears throat> um, but so that's sort of how is how that 
happens, and Andrew, Russ, and I were, were gathering stuff on our own, meeting people, talking to people, doing our own research, trying to sort of unravel for fun this mystery that was Peter Lochner. And in 1985, I was in New York. My mother was there for a business thing, and I met with her. And sure enough, first thing I did was open the phone book, and Arto Lindsay wasn't in there. Tim Wright wasn't in there, but Akua Mori was, and I called her, and I said, hi, I'm a huge fan of DNA. Da-da-da-da-da-da-da. And she said, I think the person you want to talk to is Tim Wright. And she gave me his number. And I called him, and we were talking, and he didn't say a word, and then he goes, I must see you. Can you come by here at 11 o'clock tonight? And Tim had a real distinctive voice. And I sort of hung out with him. We talked for a long time. Um, I had some DNA live tapes he didn't have. And we talked a little bit about Perubu. And I got a phone call from him after I gave him the tapes, like several weeks later. And he said, you know, one of those tapes you sent me was a show from a tour that was aborted because I thought we sounded like, I was having real problems with this shit. I thought it sounded like, he said, I felt like I was shredding cabbage up there. And he said, you know, listening to that tape, I realized we sounded pretty damn good. So this despair I have had been carrying around with me since the 80s is now gone, thanks to you. And that sort of you know, just shattered me. <clears throat> so it just was um, a wonderful thing to hear. I mean, that's, just, that's not something you hear from people very often. Well, he was one of my base heroes. And then when he came to yeah. see a band I was in called The Takers at the Knitting Factory in 2002, um, which was an early date with my now wife, Amanda, um, he was very charming, as he was. Tim was an extraordinarily charming, but he was also sort of not of this earth. He had a very holy presence to him. So, you know, he walked into a room, you, 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 do, you couldn't help but turn your head. and he praised my baseball, which destroyed me because, I, you know, when you please the master, what do you do? And that band broke up not too long afterwards, and I didn't pick up a bass for four years because I, I didn't know I didn't know where to go after that. Um, but he, you know, was so charming and had a huge impact also on my relationship with Amanda. So, um, and since my ex now widow, Marianne and I always remain close. Uh, she's family and she is the executor of the Walker estate. So that of course helped immensely in this whole project. Um, so I, you know, that's, this is, you had asked me about what is it like, you know, to, sort of immerse yourself in somebody's life this much and it's fucking exhausting. <laughs> and uh, I don't know Peter any better really than I did when it started out. Uh, we started this thing out. Um, it's never been my goal to kind of unlock the man, but it just sort of was this gathering of trying to gather as much as we could and then making a decision about what might best represent him in a box set. Um, and, um, you know, you asked also, Dad, did we have arguments about track selections? No, I mean, we don't, we don't, 
fight or argue about these things. Um, were there tracks that I wish had gone on the box set in place of others? Oh, hell yeah. And I lost, I won some of those. I lost some of those. It's not a fight, but um, I worried that there was a little too much Lou Reed and maybe not enough of some other artists that Peter covered, such as like Babies on Fire but by Finns, you know, uh, by yeah, we, you know, which is still available on the 45 if you want, you can find it. Yeah, and, oh, wait, not Peter, not the Peter Lochner version, you mean the Finns version, right? Well, yeah, that's what Peter, I mean, that's Peter and Benzik, Robert Benzik. Oh, okay, okay, okay. Uh, Scott Krause, uh, Deb Smith, yep. and uh, Lachlan McIntosh. And uh, we put What Goes On on the box, which is also the 45, but um, the one that I wanted... And what I really know comes out today is they do an absolutely astounding version of Brian Ferry's arrangement of the in crowd with Peter nailing the David Ellis guitar solo. I think it's David Ellis who does it on the Ferry version. Um, that just, to me, is just mind blown. But it's like 11 minutes long. Uh, so they do, at that show, too, I mean, they do four. They do Bays on Fire, they do What Goes On, they do Walking the Dog by Rufus Thomas, and they do uh, In Crowd. And then the rest of it is these weird, you know, kind of improv jams that sort of sound like hot rats. But Lochner notoriously hated Zappa, so I, you know, <laughs> you know Benzik was way into Tangerine Dream and, you know, Wendy Carlos, so... All of this kind of informs this. But I mean, you know, it's Scott Krause loved in that Peacock. So uh, it's interesting stuff. That is one recording that I do hope comes out. And I would love to put on the fourth side of a double vinyl or of uh, the complete um, microphonic tape that we excerpt, excerpted on the, uh, the 45, mm-hmm. which, is, which is the track called Heart Part 2, which is the Michael's Fusion. Uh, tape with Scott and Benzik and uh, Peter and Albert Dennis. I'd love to put that whole thing on there too, because that's that's sort of like my chronic back by essentially Finns, and uh, I think it's really extraordinary stuff. But any future releases that come out, that is up to Frank from Smogville and Marianne of the Lochner. I that's not um, my say. I mean, I'm. I'm working on our next releases anyhow with not Lochner, but um, I'm, that's what I'm immersed in right now, and I have been since the box set was wrapped. Uh, frankly, I'm are you, just are glad. You able to talk, are you able to talk about what that next release is? I, uh, there are three. I can talk about one. Uh, one of the, what we're going to be doing. This is not official, uh, so this is because we haven't made this announcement, but I'm happy to talk about it because. I just wrapped the tracks and sent them off to Sam yesterday. We're going to be doing uh, a Jimmy Lay compilation of stuff spanning 1969 to 1974. And uh, are you, do you know who Jimmy is? No. Who was that? Jimmy uh, was one of Peter's local heroes, and he talks about him in the piece from October 11, The Rock River Liberation, you know, Cleveland is. You know, three top mm-hmm. bands or top three bands. Jimmy's one of the ones he talks about. Jimmy's, uh, it's, it's, it's really interesting. He sort of is like a, when you think about uh, blues in Cleveland, and basically 
in Cleveland, Kent, Akron, there's like basically five folks who come up, and it's Mr. Stress, Numbers Band, Robert Jr. Lockwood, of course, um, a guy named Dave Griggs, and um, Jimmy Lay. And Jimmy, Jimmy has an astounding, fascinating history. Um, he had long-running residencies at the Mistake, which was underneath the Agora, and several other clubs in town. Um, he was good friends with Glenn Schwartz. He um, became friends with Peter. Several people the, of note passed. Go ahead. On the um, sorry, on the, I hate to interrupt. On the box set, uh, there yeah. there were two songs that Peter, where he introduced one of them by saying, um, "You should go ask, go to your local record store and ask for this," um, but they won't have it. Was it that? Was that who? No, um, God, I can't remember. I wish I remember that name, but no. <laughs> yeah, I can't. Forgive me. I I don't. No, no. I just thought I maybe that was who who that was. Okay. But Jimmy was... didn't put out a record till the eighties. That's okay. the thing that Vince had, and he, you know, the whole story will be told. You know, now it can be told. You know, it'll be told, and it's a, an incredible history of someone who came so close and should have should have been but a lot of folks associated with the mistrust blues band also played with jimmy some folks like chuck drastic alan green um chip fitzgerald um donnie baker you know he had great great bands and um it's similar blues to Stress, but he's also similar to the Numbers Band, but he has this voice that's like, like a supernova. And all that came out in those days was a very rare 45 of a song called uh, I Think Your Time Has Come, which is going on the release, and it's B-side, which is the 413. And it's, it's real hard to explain. It's sort of this combo of like regional southern blues with chicago blues with rockabilly with rock and roll um and this you know the string of extraordinary guitar players that he had and um he wrote his own stuff but he also did a lot of covers and it's long overdue much like um Haimaya, you know or benzik i mean he's yet another person from ohio who was made, doing extraordinary things that have slipped in the cracks of history simply because he wasn't they weren't represented by you know records or or just anything outside of their regional uh fame and jimmy did start getting out of he did get out of the state but until later and by that point that he was getting out in the 80s and 90s he had said you know blues has been reduced to sort of doing the one four five blues hammer um, kind of stuff. I mean, Tim Matson of the Mr. Stress Blues Band was a, an astounding guy, I mean, just an immensely fantastic guy. He said, you know, Stevie Ray Vaughan ruined blues. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, don't get me wrong. You're, don't get me wrong. He's a great guitar player, but he ruined it. And oh, I, so I did totally the, agree. Yep. And he goes, so did the Blues Brothers. But someone listening to this might say, like, yeah, but you're talking about white blues and i'm like right but in that world 
And this is going from also things I've read with Alan Wolf, Muddy Waters. Uh, you know, Muddy Waters, who probably had the first integrated Chicago blues band. And they said, you know, what the hell? You know, why do you have this guy Paul Osher or Bob Marlin? And he goes, because they're good. Um, and Robert Jr. Lockwood loved loved Stress and he loved Jimmy. And Jimmy even played with Lockwood for a while. So you can't say that that they weren't any good or they were false or they were culture appropriating because in that world, they were loved, you know, amongst black folk. They loved those guys. They loved Stress, and Stress was a kid, you know, a tough kid who'd grown up in the projects. Uh, he, he knew the street as well as anybody else. And it's like the great stories about, like, Leonard the Chess Brothers, that, you know, they were Polish, you know, Polish Jewish immigrants who also grew up in the project were poor and tough. And apparently Leonard Chess's favorite word was motherfucker, you know, and uh, he could go head to head with anybody verbally. Uh, so he could walk the walk and talk the talk that he was Jewish and, and Polish and white. Didn't seem to matter to guys like Muddy Waters. And it's an interesting perspective and, you know, a white guy talking about this, and I suppose it's skewed, but, I mean, it's an interesting perspective about how we can sometimes forget about time and place and perception from the other side. Um, I mean, a sort of sidestep example of that is that great scene, Nanny Hall, by Woody Allen, in which the guy's talking about Marshall McLuhan, and, you know, Woody pulls Marshall McLuhan out from behind the plant. And McLuhan goes, you know, I'm Marshall McLuhan. <laughs> you completely don't understand where I'm coming from. And well, waiting in uh, line for the movie for that. Yeah. Waiting yeah. in line, right? Yeah. 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 There's a, you know, and, and then that shit still goes on. I mean, there's, you know, people who, who get this recognition and it's Emperor's New Clothes. I mean, they, they, they you know, they outright suck and people hold them up. And it's kind of like, you know, you don't have to accept this tainted product. You know, there's 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 tons and tons and tons of great writers out there, and great musicians, and great everything. Who they're not on your radar, so you know, seek them out for Christ's sake. And you know, that's again, we go back to the bootlegs and that whole circuit. I mean, this desire to hear what else is there. I mean, I mean, you're being offered this music on the mainstream, which you don't have to sit, get on your knees, and accept like communion. I mean, you can say no. I, this stuff tastes like shit. I want something better. Uh, give me some of the wine. And, you know, I just, uh, it's something that troubles me because this, I, to me, music has been a major part of my life and I'm 45 and it's still what actually runs my life. But does run my life. That's, that's, you know, that's how my rent is paid. That's how food is put on the table. It's all for music. And, uh, you know, it's 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 just it, it's it's in my blood, and it's like I I always am a cast when people are going on about the oh that new Taylor you know that new uh, Taylor Swift record, and I'm like, <laughs> I, you know, uh, okay, well it's pop. I mean, it's 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 put in a nice little package with a pretty bow on it. I mean, if you're gonna go there, why don't you listen to Miley Cyrus or Lady Gaga because they're not ruined by autotune and they're actually i think making genuine music i mean i don't tend to listen to it but i feel that they're coming from a genuine place i mean miley cyrus 
brought the flame and lips on Torres or backing Ben. I'm sorry if she destroys anybody else in that field. You know, it, you know, listen to Missy Elliott. Please listen to Missy Elliott. Please listen to any number of hip hop artists who are still making groundbreaking work um, and are, are, you know, I don't know because they're older. You know, it doesn't make you look young and hip. I don't know. Uh, I really can't speak to that. Um, am I talking too much? <laughs> no, no, I love it. This is one. This is kind of pretty, pretty good for an interview, right? <laughs> for to have you talking. Well, you're very it's kind, great, and it's I just nice to hear a perspective I have shared by someone else. <laughs> I feel that feel validated. Talks too much. My God, he didn't shut up, Joe. Jesus Christ! Why do you bring that fucker on the show? I'm, uh, <laughs> thankfully, I've switched from high high test French French roast to more. Uh, medium city roast, so that's why I'm not going in circles here. Uh, well, I am going in circles, but at least I know where the point, the starting point is. Um, so, granted, this also then ties back into the normal life versus not so normal life, and I don't judge people who, who choose that, but I don't. You know, there's a great scene in Spike Lee's, Lee's Spike Lee's Malcolm X film in which um, Malcolm X is speaking with the Honorable Elijah Muhammad and he, he puts the ink in the glass of water and it's tainted and so it taints it and he says, you know, if you take this and you give it to the people, they will accept it because it's coming from you. And um, the way Denzel Washington reacts as Malcolm X is pretty pointed because you can see on one hand he's like, that's why would I offer something tainted, but at the same time, he begins to see the power of of you as a figure of, that people trust. And this isn't a political broadcast, so we won't get into that and what's happening, you know, the, the, the media manipulation that can happen. That's part of my degree, too. I also, my, my old man was a hard-boiled, um, you know, alcoholic newspaper man who, as things switched over slowly, he grew very bitter at the changes in the industry, but he, you know, he always had a very uh, skewed perspective, and um, that was based on his experiences, uh, which were going back to the 50s, and uh, that had an influence on me, uh, and the power of words, and how you present words in a certain way can you know, certainly make or break people's perception of things, and I Okay, and then you guys say, because I don't know what it was like to say Omaha at that time when we were coming of age, if you will. But I had, but along those lines, I had, and I mean, basically I'm saying like those are different times, and it, it really is true. And the cultural focus, I think, was very different. And things change, and I totally am fine. I mean, it, it, things change. I mean, there was, you know, there's a old joke that a, uh, when, uh, Record players became affordable and came on the market. There were a hell of a lot of sheet music publishers who were enraged. But then, uh, when the printing press, you know, started to come in, there were a hell of a lot of calligraphers who were suddenly out of work. I mean, this is not you know, digital eliminated people who were printing presses and accepted specialty stuff and digital printing. So, I mean, I had a roommate who was a specialist in certain kinds of digital printing on uh, on um, analog and digital printing on blueprints. And he's a uh, extraordinary, or actually extraordinary noise artist in Carl Heinz. And but he actually was a classical Spanish guitar player. <laughs> and um, you know, he when the print shop closed, he 
he went back to school, finished his master's degree, and he teaches math now. But, you know, he's happy, but he's lucky. He's lucky that he has the self, you know, he had had a way to sort of put himself into his, to to the change. I didn't want to, I was too, I was so afraid when I was playing music of ending up like one of these punkers at the bar sitting in the corner, you know, blasted and hoping against hope that somebody would recognize so they could sit there and launch into one of their, let me tell you about punk rock kit stories, which is (laughs) to me a a form of hell that uh, one should never have to experience. Granted, it's a first world problem, but I'm sure, you know, it exists elsewhere. Um, But yeah, my older half sister was a way into funk and soul and disco. And my older half brother was an LA punk. I mean, his dad was in LA, so he came up to live with us. But he first turned me into like the Buzzcocks when I was about six, and Black Flag, and Bow Wow Wow, and Talking Heads. And my mother was the one who was into Bowie. Uh, we Let's Dance and all that, and she loved Fleetwood Mac, and she loved. But she's uh, my mother's from Denmark, so she loved blues, and she loved uh, as as did my father. So I had this real palette, and I think, for me, the life-changing moment was when I was about six as well. My sister had bought Donna Summer Love and more. And I can still recall the first time I heard I Feel Love. And I was in the living room, and it came on, and I stopped in my tracks, and I had just thought it was the most extraordinary thing and I remember pretending on the couch that I was playing synthesizer and there was like an A-bomb going off I still adore and worship that song and it's such an important piece of music its influence is almost infinite um, but you know you have something like that happen you, you know you want, it's like a drug you know you want to you want to chase that high, and I'm still chasing that high. <laughs> yeah. And uh, I'm glad I can still kind of get to it. I mean, uh, and all that. But I mean, it's it it was extraordinary that um, I was able to get involved with Smogvale, and that happened the same way that everything else did. So I we, we had heard Andrew and I had heard about the Lochner box set at that time. A guy named Chris Grove, who'd been the DJ and WNBR in town was also involved, and I forget who I met Chris through, but he was also a Lochner fanatic, and he'd actually secured a cache of uh, tapes from a guy named Mike Weisskopf, who I think had gotten them from Chris Stigliano of Loud.com. And there were about 20, 25 tapes of Lochner stuff, you know, all kinds of stuff. And, um, and we have found the masters of most of that stuff since. And those masters were the sources on the, the, the box set. But one, song, one track we didn't have the master for was the Cinderella's Revenge uh, tune, I'm So Fucked Up. We don't actually have that master because I think it was something Mark Price recorded. He was doing sound. He was in Tim and he's uh, deceased. And no one seems to know what happened in his tapes. I, I hate to think about what Mark may also have had in his uh, stash. Well, the good news is is that we Frank acquired a plethora of early Tin Huey recordings, um, like a full bag's worth. And um 
I had heard two really early tracks from 73 and 74 via a compilation that this guy, Jim Kleinfelter, had put together uh, was sort of a, a choir of rare Cleveland recordings. Um, it's the first place I ever heard Keith Bush, who was in The Ragged Bags. It was another tragic, sad story. He sort of, he sort of sits, it literally sits in between Mike Lochner and um, Jim Shepard, although I don't think Keith really wrote music, but he was a really interesting guitar player, an interesting guy. And I think he was the bartender at JB's in Canada, which is how most people knew him, but um, he died way too young, you know. And um, How old was he? 30s. Uh, the big rumor on, on him, the big, big rumor on him was that he was actually in the National Guard at Kent State. Oh, he really? didn't kill anybody. He, he, yeah, that's a rumor. That's Johnny Flynn from, oh God, what the hell was Johnny Flynn in? Might have been in Zero Defects. I think he was in the Army Facts. Uh, told me that story. He says it was, it was always a rumor. He didn't kill anybody. He didn't fire his gun, but he was there, and he said it really messed with him for the rest of his life, and which I can imagine. I mean, yeah, yeah. You know, if, you, if you think about who also was affected by Kent State, I mean, we are in 9-11 talking about this, but you know, Kent State was its own. May 4th, somebody was its own 9-11 in Ohio. Uh, when you think about uh, what happened, and also it was fair, you know, I mean, Barry Casale, Chrissy Hind, um, Mark Weathersbow, I think, wasn't there, but he was at State at that time. Um, and I think Chris Butler of Pinch Huey was also there. And um, I may be wrong about that, but it really messed with a lot of people. And that was, you know, if you've read any of Jerry Casali's texts on this or uh, any of the books on Devo, all of which are pretty excellent, uh, talk about the, how this led to one of the, con one of the, one of the major pieces of conceptualization by Casali and Moses Bow and Bob Lewis, uh, who, who uh, was an early part of Devo, uh, of de-evolution which seems awfully, you know, astute now. And, uh, but at the time was, you know, because of the uh, other costumes, you know, people sort of dismissed them as a novelty act. But, I mean, what, what better way to present such a radical philosophy than in the guise of sort of a clown suit, if you will? Um, which is also, I mean, you can say that about a lot of things. It sort of goes back to what I said about Don Young's production, is that it's the sort of sticky sweet. Uh, power pop exterior, but inside it's total darkness. I mean, you can say the same about, say, Michael Disney from the UK, from Ireland, uh, with uh, Catholic Coughlin. Did, uh, um, did you ever see Devo when they opened for themselves as Dove, the Band of Love? No, but I had a boot. I had a boot like a Long Beach show, and um, I thought that was just amazing, amazing, amazing stuff. I mean, how they were doing. Um, <sighs> Not Sorry, man, on a, I just wanted to, to know. I love. love no, love please, no, it's because it's, it's, it's a great, it's a great. Well, I'll give you one that's not well known. Uh, Pat Ryan, who was Cinderella Backstreet's sound man, and he was the first sound man of Ubu. He was Ubu Sam from '76 to '78, and his brother Leo, 
his older brother Leo uh, played with Peter and Blue Drivers and in Wol- the Wolves. And his younger brother Jack uh, was Adele Berti's uh, best friend and still is. And um, Pat sadly died a year ago. Pat was one of my very best friends and someone who talked me off the ledge a lot in regards to when I sort of wanted to walk away from the box set when it seemed that it was never going to happen because of the. Uh, the major delay, by the way, with the box that came over when Tim died, Tim Wright died, and there was a rights shift over to Marianne, and it just it took a lot longer legally than it should have. Um, but that's what happened. But the good news is that in the meantime, we kept finding more and more and more tapes, and we're still finding tapes. Even after this, we found two more recordings of Peter that we didn't have before. Uh, one of which is from 73, and uh, a solo session, and another is uh, more stuff of him with Mr. Stress Blues Band in 72. So it's amazing that this stuff is still being found. I mean, it's it's kind of ridiculous when you think about it, but it's, hey, yeah. you know. David Thomas's recent email regarding uh, not the box set, but a piece that had come out before the box set, which I'm not going to mention, but had a lot of questionable stuff in it and it was sort of presented in a way that takes a lot of things out of context. He wrote sort of a vague email to the, his mailing list about being taken out of context and uh, let me set the record straight. And he has been portrayed occasionally as the villain in Peter's life and we have never presented him that way because it's not true. Um, the decision for Peter to leave Kabubu was a collective one. Uh, as far as I know, uh, you know, David and Tim talked about it, but I know that Scott and Alan and Tom supported the decision. Pat Ryan had recalled them having a discussion at practice. Uh, about it. Uh, he told a story about Peter coming into practice towards the end. And uh, again, this is Pat's story, so I want to emphasize that this is Pat's story. David hasn't said that it's happened or not. Um, and Peter just being foobar and playing on the floor. And, you know, his, Peter's own accounts of being a practice uh, that he wrote about, and if you choose, choose to go, about David having to kick him awake and you know, and I think a lot of that was boredom. Because if you look at the histories of Peter's bands, they don't last very long. And I don't think Peter liked sharing power. That's Benzik had always said that because they were supposed to continue pins as Airstream. And he just said, you know, it went from we're going to do 50 50 split your songs, my song, to Peter dominating things. And I said, you know, fuck you, man. Here we go again. And you know, it, it, I think Peter just, he was sort of like Sly Stone, you know, in that I think he figured it out real early. He was an extraordinarily talented guy who was a sponge, who could do any number of styles. And I think when you've got that kind of talent, you just, I don't know, I think you can get bored real fast. Yeah, as you look yeah I was going to add level. about that about his band his band's not lasting very long but it, it seems pretty clear that that yeah that yeah things were working yeah. in his head a little faster than maybe the people around him and he just or whatever their 
their ideology was about the band and he wanted to kind of move along faster than they could. Yeah, and I think that's also sort of the illumination about the television stuff, which we again have Richard Wade and Tom Verlaine and Billy Sickness to thank um, for that, especially Tom. Uh, we would speak with Fred Smith. Billy didn't even really recall Peter. Um, Lloyd gave me his own take on it, and Lloyd's an extraordinary person to talk to. I mean, I swear I gained IQ points talking to him. Uh, he's very engrossing. Um, you want to make sure you get good Richard and not dark Richard, but dark Richard is interesting too. Um, but, you know, that it was sort of like I had said, is that basically Peter would have been Billy, uh, Billy Rip. He would have been playing the part as they were written and had little to no creative input. Um, so while it is, it is a wonderful fantasy to think about Peter actually replacing Richard Lloyd in television, doing his own thing. Um, I think even Tom knew, Tom Verlaine knew that he was going to have to wield the this is my band thing over Peter because next thing you know, it would have been like what Peter was inadvertently doing in the Mr. Stress Blues Band is that he was slowly taking over the group from Bill. And Bill said, you know, hey kid, look, this is my band and we do what I want and I've let you... He gave Peter some of his... He let Peter sing some songs. He let them do... Uh, we have a recording of Peter doing uh, Leopard Skin Pillbox Hat with the Mr. Stress Blues Band. There's two versions. There's one from 72, which we've not put out, but there's also one from when he sat in with them in 76 that, that does circulate. It's not there. You just look for it. It's there. Can't hand it. Um, and uh, he leads. I mean, he Bill's playing harp, but I mean, it's, I think Peter was starting to push into a further direction and Bill, you know, kind of loose. And um, some of that is explored in the, the piece, but it, 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 it if nothing else, it, 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 it's an attempt to tell a historical story um, about a little chunk of American life as it was from folks who I feel contributed greatly to the canon of American music and American culture, which is, I think, something we've gotten sadly far away from. I think we forget that Miles Davis and Jackson Pollock are, are American culture, you know, that that, uh, that William Faulkner and Barbara Ehrenreich are American culture. I mean, it's, it's Carson McCullers, and uh, I can go on and on and on like you can. You know, it's, it's Otis Redding. I mean, come on. Uh, but it's sort of how easily we forget, and I guess my whole goal, part of this, and you talk about hero worship in your notes to me, uh, you know, you don't want to be an A.J. Weberman. You don't want to be... <laughs> a garbologist. Oh, God. I, if you want to, your listeners, if you want to really free yourself out about what where fandom can lead to, and I'm not talking about Mark David Chapman, but, you know, look up A.J. Weberman on YouTube. And, he's, you know, the, yeah. the, still, go ahead. Still like that, I think. I think he's still, like, putting out books, he's releasing books and books and books still, right? Um, oh, like, he, yeah, he said that he's the reason, recently said he's the reason Bob has a career. So it's like, uh, you know, yeah, take from that as you will. But it, it, it just, 
in terms of Peter with Lou Reed, I'm going to just say that Robert Benzik met Lou Reed in the 80s. And what he said to Lou Reed was, you know, my friend Peter is dead because he wanted to be you. And then what we get into with that is public versus private persona. Mm-hmm. And not so much like the dual duality, like if you will, like an example that most people would never take seriously is Gigi Allen and Kevin Michael Allen. I have luckily known and know people who played with him and they draw this very firm iron door line between Kevin and Gigi. And Kevin was intelligent, well-spoken, thoughtful, loved and cared about his friends and was, you know, this guy who could write one hell of a melody and Gigi was the human one-man destruction machine. And People think of him and they see the naked guy running on stage, you know, throwing shit, smearing himself with blood and, you know, attacking people. But there really is this bizarre dichotomy. Um, and for anyone who doubts this, I say, watch the bonus footage of Unhated, the documentary about him, in which they've got the last day of his life where he has that crazy show at the, um, it's called The Gas Station in New York, which... Regardless of anything, the two songs that they perform are just absolutely incredible. Could whoever from the Chromecracks is on guitar, and um, just, just, just incredible. It's like they put everything they have into these two songs, and then he's walking around New York in a trench coat, like his underwear and his boots, and he keeps going. I just want to get high, man. I just want to get high, and surrounded by all these punk kids. It looks like, you know, Washington crossing the Delaware. And they're at a corner and this really well-dressed woman with a baby carriage. And she turns around and she goes, Kevin! And he goes, hey! And they embrace. Now, remember, he's covered in, like, oil and shit. And she, you know, she looks like an executive. And they're talking, oh, you've been all my car, right? It's, it's one of the most absurd things you'll ever fucking see. And then, then she leaves, and he goes back to his entourage. I don't think it's And it's like, holy shit, you know? And it, it's that, again, it's like, how much of Peter did we see in the public, and how much is, was, was private? And I have seen some of the private stuff uh, in terms of things that have been shared with me by people who were very close to him that we would never release to the public. And it's very complex. And a lot of people knew different versions of Peter. And uh, it's really hard to say. I don't think he was a phony. But I think he, because of his extraordinary talents, could be many different people depending on the music he was into or who he was running with or what drugs he was doing at the time. Um, You know, it really is one of those things that goes in, I think, in terms of also like just the perceptions of celebrity. It's a lot about like, you know, what Warhol talks about, but also to some extent, Philip K. Dick and J.G. Ballard. And um, 
do you really ever know the person behind the public persona? And can you understand that there is a persona, but also a real person behind that persona? And because again, Mark David Chapman's uh, assassination of John Lennon is a great example of it. And um, I think another one that's really important to point out, and I'm really going into left field here, is um, Leonard Skinner. Because I don't think people realize Ronnie was um, a lot of his songs are not him talking. He's taking personas on other people. Like Sweet Home Alabama is almost, I think, a sarcasm because they were from Jacksonville. And I met this long, long, long term Skinner fan who really opened my eyes up and she said, You know, I thought they were much like, you know rednecks and stuff like her she's like oh no 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 she said ronnie wanted to be sam cook he wanted to be marvin gay and you take a song you take the rock and roll monolith that is the song saturday night special mr saturday night special and the just astounding groove on that song that is a black group and the fact that a southern rock band are doing an anti-handgun song very clearly, it's not even subversive, is somewhat extraordinary, or that smell in which he's you know, condemning, I think it was Gary Rossington for being, for nearly getting himself killed for being fucked up while he was driving. And this is not good old boy shit. I mean, this is real conscious stuff, and I think, you know, you've got songs in which Ronnie really adapted a persona. And I think, unfortunately, some people fans think that, that he's speaking for himself, and I don't necessarily think that he is, having listened to a couple of the records since then. And also, like, if you guys were idiots, you know, Tom and Al Cooper wouldn't have worked with you. <laughs> so, you know, and that's something to think about, too. And it's like, that to me is an example where she said, you know, the current politics of the band, of Skinner, as they are now, led by his younger brother, are wrong, would be discussed at night. And it's something that just gets into the complexities of, 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 of being in a band and, and being in a band is harder than being in a marriage. I mean, it's, it's the worst times in a band are just like they produce scars that don't heal. And um, you're dealing with ego, you're dealing with insecurity, you're dealing with butting heads and ideas that, different people have and the way that they hear a song or a riff and what they want to do with it. Conflict is just, it's, a, it's amazing that bands stay together as long as they do stay like as long as the Scorpions or Golden Earring or even the Stones, you know, stayed, have stayed together. It's, it's just extraordinary because uh, I think bands that are, are truly successful and long lasting are bands that have figured the shit out. Although I, I've always been heard that, Mick and Keith don't even really talk anymore, but I mean, I, I personally believe they should have quit after Undercover. Keith should have gone off to play with Keith uh, with Tom Waits, but hey, what do I know? I was just going to say the same thing. Yeah, I was going to say he should have uh-huh. kept up after Rain Dogs and just stayed with Tom Waits. Well, I like Keith. I, I think Keith is. My wife yeah. once said this really wonderful thing. She's like, Keith has become one of his own heroes. Um, yeah. <laughs> That's funny. You know? Yes. Yeah, he's. And. Uh, I think there's very little to not like about um, 
about his persona. Mm -hmm. And um, there's a guy here in town uh, who plays uh, in a very fun band called Rock Bottom uh, whose girlfriend works for the Stones in, in costume department and or in their stage gear. And she said that like Keith is just the most incredibly nice guy. And she says he's always thanking her. And she's like, I mean, I work for him. <laughs> you know, <laughs> so, it's always nice to hear that when people like you said about, you know, I told you about wire that they're all really sweet, really kind. And, um, the buzzcocks too. And you know, when you meet, you meet folks on that level, like Jimmy Fox, who I spent a lot of time talking to and still speak to, uh, Jimmy of the James gang, when we were doing the sports Fox blues crusade release. I mean, he's just really down to earth. Wonderful guy. This is Richard Shank, who, uh, played in a pre-James Gang version, a band called Governors with Jimmy, and also was on the James Gang record, um, Newborn, which is incredibly underrated. But it was great to get stories about Tommy Bone, you know, when he was with the gang. And Miami Great, that's a great record, and sadly it, it, it's overlooked. Um, but, you know, to hear stories about these folks who, I mean, you know, Tommy's another one like Peter Lochner or like, say, Tim Buckley or Jeff Buckley. Darby Crash, who were these unbelievably talented people who I think left way too soon. Um, but that's rock and roll. I mean, Jimmy Anderson, Janis Joplin, Joe Harrison, blah, 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 blah. I mean, uh, hell, Brian Paul of the association was a heroin addict. I mean, that, that how does that make, that doesn't make any sense, but the that's reality. Um, oh, God. It, yeah. It's just, it's really nice to hear about the, the Buzzcocks because I know there's that Peter Hook book about Joy Division, and he just always talks about how wonderful they were to them and really helped them out so much, and that they were kind of like almost parental in their, um, in how they acted with the other uh, Manchester bands and everybody around there. So it's, it's nice that that's being confirmed. It's wonderful. Uh, they were genuinely, I remember now when I met them, you know. Steve Garvey and John Mayer were no longer in the band. It was um, Tony Barber, and I forget who the drummer was, but it was Steve and Pete. I spent about three hours with Pete. Um, just a sweetheart, patient, um, genuinely nice guy. And, you know, who's also nice is Richard Boone, who was their manager. I mean, he's a sweetheart. John Mayer, as you know, has become an extraordinary photographer. And his his Twitter feed is if you, anybody's a fan of Buzzcocks, I highly recommend follow John because he's just tells he kept immaculate records of their history. But a funny story about Pete Shelley is kind of just the degree to which he's a, he was a wonderful person. Was I used to be roommates with bandmates with and pretty friends with a guy named Tim Morris, who was the first and the last member of Anal Cunt. Anal Cunt uh, released Morbid Forest, a pretty stupid side play, because it's Shelley from the cover of the Homo Sapien 12-inch <laughs> cut out against all these flowers, and they drew an upside-down <laughs> upside cross on its forehead. Having spent a lot of time in Anal Cunt's world, and, and, and the members of that band, most of them were actually really wonderful people. You never know it, but they really were. And very funny and the humor in that band was very complex and um yeah but just putnam I, again we're talking about 
two different things. I mean, but anyways, Tim and I went to go see the Buzzcocks, I think around 97, and they played the Paradise. And uh, Tony and I, of course, talked, and um, I Tim's like, oh, God, should I talk to Pete Shelley and apologize for that cover? And I said, well, well I don't know if you need to apologize, but Tony's like, oh, you were in the you were an anal cunt. Oh, hang on, I'll grab Pete. So out comes Pete, and he goes, "Ah, oh, it's the guy from the anal cunts." And he goes, "Hey, uh, you weren't mad about that cover." He goes, "Mad? Mate, I loved it. That was great. That was fucking great. I had my sound crawling in my head. It was fucking great. He loved it. He thought it was it was a wonderful tribute." That <laughs> someone had actually done that. That's so but great. I think, oh yeah, I mean it's, you know, it's. I mean Manchester's so rich with incredible music that spans decades, and when you meet folks, you know Alan Hempsel and all the guys in Crispy Ambulance were so disgustingly underrated. You know, like just wonderful folks and like. Dick Witts and Joe and uh, Andy from The Passage, um, another vastly underrated group. Um, just wonderful people, especially when, when they find out that you're actually interested in their music. Uh, the only person from Joy Division I've ever interacted with was Peter Hook. And he, um, I've been a longtime contributor to a site called Joy Division Central. And we were trying to confirm some of the canceled dates on the North American tour that Joy Division did in eight. We were supposed to do in 80. It was my pet project for about two years. And he wrote us this wonderful letter back about, oh, my God, you guys really have done your research. Holy crap. And uh, this was before the book came out. So, I mean, maybe we, we helped him go digging in his basement for the itinerary. Uh, my very sad regret there was I was in touch with uh, a Nick, who was um, Ian's girlfriend, who had a set list and she had notes that she was willing to share with me. And then that damn movie came out and she went in hiding. And uh, for she could send that stuff to me and she's no longer alive. And she's very sweet and she liked what we were doing. Well, this folds into Lochner. That was kind of like my dry run. And then, you know, everybody we met, with like maybe two exceptions that are just bizarro stories, um, sort of people in Peter's life who were sort of on the fringe, had just been unbelievably generous with recordings and photos and, and documents and stories. Just unbelievably generous but when you think about someone who didn't even live to be 25 who is still impacting the people he knew and played with and loved decades later I mean I think Alexander the Great you know or or you know something like that I mean that's that's extraordinary that you have that much of an impact in this life that we live and you, your the reverberations of your existence are still a 
affecting people, and the release of the box set has only cemented this. I, I, it, I mean, I can't even, I, that's what I mean, I don't know him any better. I, I don't even know how to assess that. And folks, you know, say, oh, you must be so proud. I'm like, no, I'm just glad it's fucking done. <laughs> <laughs> it was exhausting, you said earlier. <laughs> well, somebody said, oh, you're an expert. I'm like, no, no, no. Yeah, I mean, I'm not an expert. I mean, you can't be. You can't be. It's, it's not possible. No, no, There's no way for every story to be known or told. There's no way for someone in their brain to be understood unless they've revealed it to you. And even then, your perception of what they are saying to you is probably different from what's in their head. And yeah, they're, if, they're determining what to tell you in the first place. So they're not going to tell you everything. Well, and, it, you know, there's a big thing, about, you know, it's nobody's business. Mm -hmm. No, there is, there, it's nobody's, I mean, I don't, you can not print this, but like, I know what I said about Miley Cyrus. Like, I don't listen to her, but I, I, I really admire what she has done with her position as a celebrity. Okay. I really admire her and also in the Bill Murray Christmas special when she says she sings, it's like, okay, she's got the talent, but this constant bombardment, like right out of, again, like right out of like a Philip K. Dick book, of bombardment about her leaving her husband and being with his wife. Like, leave her the fuck alone. Let her just live her life, please. You know, and I, and shit they used to do it to Moderna and Michael Jackson. It's just like, God, leave them alone. Yep. They're people. They're people. You know, oh, Prince was a drug addict. Prince, Prince was in pain 24-7. And he is yet another victim of the opioid crisis, but he was in pain 24-7. I mean, the man in chronic pain. I mean, he was a Jehovah's Witness, and he, well, you know, they should do, well, you're not a Jehovah's Witness, and they have very specific things that they follow, and you can't get mad at him for that. So, you know, when people sort of take it personally when people die, it's sort of like, you know, they have an impact upon us, but at the same time, they're humans. They're not gods. And, uh, you know, so you asked me, you know, you asked me if there's going to be a part two. Like I said, that's up to Frank and Marianne. Uh, the box set will not be reissued partially because, though it has been green-lighted to possibility by the estate, the number of pressings that we'd have to do the the amount of in the pressing that we'd have to do frank just, he doesn't want to do that um but that's not to say there may not be more releases coming up in the future with Lockman. i'm not hiding anything i just don't know uh i stay out of it i'm working on the jimmy lay release in the next two as well um the the wonderful thing of working for frank is that if, if i don't know about it i don't have to worry about it you know <laughs> <laughs> I now, for the, the back for those two for the two in the future that you're that you're not going to mention are they they're also Cleveland related or Ohio related? One is Cleveland related, the other one is uh, near Cleveland. Um, okay, just curious. But it's it's yeah because they're not official yet. The Jimmy right. Lay oh, no, one I is I rapid. Oh no no no! What I mean is that like the Jimmy Lay one has been cleared. I mean that okay. we're gonna do. Um, 
the next two are still in the proposal stages. In fact, I just, for the second one, I just turned in the new track listing proposal because I'm working from a lot of different tapes and having to extract and make decisions about what should go on and what shouldn't. Um, the third one we haven't even started on. It's just sort of in the conceptual stage. Um, what I can say is one, one artist that we would like to cover in the future, and his estate is um, in the hands of people we know and like, is John Bassett. Do you know John Bassett? I don't recognize the name. He was a folk. He wasn't originally from. He was not originally from Cleveland, but he actually put out a record on UA in 1971, and then put out a series of self-released records. Um, How do you spell it? And then B A S S E T E. Okay. And he has a, a wonderful song called "It's So Nice Down on Hester Street," and he played regular gigs through when he died, and I think he died in the 90s. Um, but he had, he led a very interesting life, and he was African-American. And um, there are live recordings out there that have that stream, and uh, he put out several records. And uh, you can get his stuff on eBay or Discogs. It's up there. And, uh, but he's, we'd like to do sort of a retrospective on, on him possible and you know uh there are other people that we discuss um there was a great 60s group in cleveland called the case of et hooley which was basically a super group uh people who passed through that group you know rich shack who i mentioned before donnie maker uh sort of the cleveland guitar hero who passed mr stress um dale peters of the uh, james gang chip fitzgerald of uh, many groups, and uh, Paul Klonowski was their first drummer. He was a on again, off again drummer, stress, but their second drummer was KJ Knight, who ended up in the Amboy Dukes. Okay. Um, really interesting band, interracial. And I remember I rescued the tapes from Suma's basement one or two years ago. And I say rescued because they were moldy and that time, it was on, the future of Sue was uncertain with Paul Hammond, unfortunately, uh, dying way, uh, way before his time. But um, the tapes are in the hands of Dale Peters, and we hope to maybe do something with them down the road. Um, we shall see. We shall see. I immediately went to the... Go. I just went to Discogs to look at the John Bassett stuff, and yeah, it's looks really interesting. Yeah, I would say, I would recommend uh, Weed and Warm, or uh, there's one, I forget the name of it, but he's on the cover. It's a black and white cover. He's in a cowboy hat. I think it came out in like 72. 72. Oh, oh, this time around. Yeah, that one's great. That's Hester Street on it, and that's a wonderful song, and I would say start there. But, um, yeah, I mean, that's the thing. It's like, the more you find out, the deeper you go. The more you realize you don't know. And <laughs> kind of the beauty of it is, like, there's always so much more to learn. It's always so wonderful to realize that 
maybe I still haven't heard my favorite song and I'm going to keep looking for it, you know? Oh, that's a wonderful point. I mean, um, God, I can't think of it, but I only heard a song in the last couple of weeks that I'd never heard before that the riff is so airtight on it that it's, it's gross. It's, it's just extraordinary. And I can't think of who the artist is, but I just, you know, it's kind of like the first time I heard Princess of the Universe by Utopia. And that was only about 10 years ago. And I, I was so floored by the riff that I remember being at work and having it on repeat. And I think I listened to it 10 times in a row. Yeah, obsessive much? Yeah, okay. Uh, I'm not on the spectrum. Come on. But I mean, uh, you know, just you get a riff like that and it just, it shapes you. The first time I heard, there's a demo version of uh, Honeyman by Tim Buckley mm-hmm. and I was so thrown by the groove on that I <laughs> started pounding the wall at work and uh I had my boss say like don't put your fist please don't put your fist in the wall <laughs> but it just, you know it, it hits you like that and you're just like oh my god you know it's it's it's, it's something else and um you know you think about like a great riff like that as a born on the bad sign uh, by Albert mm-hmm. King. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's just that intro. Um, so, uh, you know, but anyways, you know, for that, I would also apply it to Final Solution by Perugo, that intro based by Tim Wright uh, is yep. just so distinct. You hear that, you, you, you immediately know what it is, or Heart of yeah, Darkness. I- so, and I'm happy to answer any other uh, questions that we haven't uh, Oh, oh, yeah. Sorry, I was just sort of now I just want to hear stories. <laughs> yeah. It's funny. I've been, um, since that box set, since the Locker box set came out, I've been just pouring through um, the Perugu stuff, but uh, the Dave Thomas solo stuff um, I've been really getting into. Or not necessarily solo, but his name is used on it with whatever bands, the Wooden Tops or whatever it might be. There's some a lot of really, really fun stuff there. Really interesting. Yeah, and you know, and you know what also gets ignored which i think is kind of a crime are some of the records that Ubu did uh later on specifically cloudland is wonderful and worlds and collisions a lot of good in tenement years got a lot of great stuff like george had a hat or we have the technology and uh story of my life is way overlooked um I Reagan suitcase is kind of where I stop. I mean, that album, people love that record. I'm, I'm not a fan of it. I'm not dismissing it. And that's what I think I have to, you know, that you have to remind people, like, I'm not saying it's garbage. I'm not saying it's crap. It's not. It's just not. When the band goes into that direction, um, I don't follow them. Uh, and that's not to say the stuff sucks. That, that, no, oh, right. I mean, not at all. Um, I mean, Steve Melman is absolutely astounding drummer. Um, I personally feel like he can eat Neil Peart for breakfast, but that's me because uh, I'm not a huge fan of Neil Peart. Um, Either. <laughs> don't tell my wife. I think the first, I actually think the first three Rush records along the world to stage are actually okay. But they're they're kind of like a prawn at Zeppelin upper band at that point. Um, but yeah, don't tell my wife that. Uh, <laughs> I have to hide the eight tracks somewhere on, <laughs> but um, 
but I think that, you know, you can't, if he's involved, if Steve's involved, Robert Wheeler's involved, or Michelle, Michelle Temple's involved, it can't be bad. It just, it's not possible. Um, but there are times just, in the evolution of a band when they seem, when they make a change and it's sort of, it sort of feels like, well, they're still great, but they're just not writing songs for me right now. Just, you know, maybe I'll come back and we'll meet up again someday. But as of, as of right now, like, you know, it's just not mine. Well, and that gets dangerous. Um, I, you know, like Mr. Burns, I mean, I used to play with Peter Prescott. I was in the very last version of Customize, and I was in the peer group for two years, which was like bad group therapy, but that wasn't necessarily Peter's fault. But like, you know, Burma, when they got back together, were desperately trying to start doing all their new material. They really wanted to not have to... You know, especially like I think by the time they put up the third or fourth record of the reunion, you know, they they're all, they're all big fans of Wire, especially Peter, and they kind of wanted to take the Wire approach or even like the Bowie approach, where you you know, you, Graham Lewis said in an interview, you know, when he asked me, you know, why don't it's the time when when by Ford come out and they're playing live, someone said like, why aren't you doing stuff with Pink Flag? Graham said, we're not a human jukebox. But didn't and they didn't they just hire a cover band a wire cover band to open for them? Eighty seven tour, yeah, it's the ex Lion Tamers, which is Jim D. Yeah. Rogotis is uh, he's the drummer. Yeah, they did. Paint. That's yeah. what they did. Was brilliant. That was brilliant. Um, <laughs> yeah, what a great idea. Dynamite Hemorrhage, the fanzine, actually just did a big story on them. I don't know without that, but they interviewed as many people as they could and get a witness reports. And, um, but I, you know, I, I feel like the 80s wire stuff is, is disgustingly overlooked. I mean, uh, Drill is fabulous. And I mean, I did a copy and it's beginning to be back to wonderful records. But everybody's going pink flag, pink flag, pink flag, one, two, or two. And I, that's where that gets dangerous because you've got to let a band evolve. You've got to let oh, a band move forward. I mean, I love George Harris solo. I love George. He's the only, you know, as a former Beatle fanatic, I mean, that's pretty much what I put on for pleasure. And um, I don't really listen to Lennon, so I don't, don't listen to McCartney or Ring of Star. So um, if I'm listening to Beatles, it's select songs like, you know, Other Joe than Roberts. Temporary Secretary, of course. McCartney. Uh, hey, McCartney, too. Okay, well, that's a good example that you bring that up because that is Paul trying to actually break out. That record is coming up is wonderful. And that record is cool because that really was him saying, like, let me try this. It's almost like Bob Mould's um Modulate. Is it Modulate? Um Is that the name of that record? Because I love that record. Modul yeah, it was Modulate. Bob, I think it was Modulate. Yeah. Yeah. I, I interviewed Bob for EQ and the first words that were out of my mouth was was, was like, I really like Modulate. And he goes, Oh, we're gonna get along just fine. <laughs> and Mark Eitzel did the same thing on Candy Apps, which is an extraordinary record. Mark, that's, an, that's a wonderful record. And people are like, I don't like that electronic stuff. But I think if you do it well, you let an artist evolve. Yep. And you don't try to tie them to like what they were doing in their early 20s. Um, oh, absolutely. And that's not, not what I meant. Sense. That's not what I meant earlier. I didn't think, no, I didn't think it. No. Yeah. I didn't think that's what you meant, but I mean, I think a lot of folks, I mean, even the Stones, it's like, you know, they want to hear Satisfaction, they want to hear Jumping Jack Flash, and shit, somebody said, go see the Stones, I'm like, I hope they play Fingerprint File, I hope they play Starfucker, I hope they play Heaven, 
I hope they play uh, too tough. I don't yeah. need to hear Jumpin' Jack Flash, you know? Exactly, yeah, um, exactly. They've got to be tired of that. That's why I appreciate somebody like uh, very much so, because I'm basically obsessed with him. But uh, Bob Dylan, when he he doesn't do the same versions. I mean, sometimes it doesn't work, but sometimes it does. And the way from a, a quote or from something I had read by him, he said, the you know, a song that a recorded version is just a photograph of the life of a song. So it's going to keep evolving. And it just, he does different versions of them because he doesn't want to get sick of it. Well, that's very true. And that's how you stay on the interest. I, mean, I was in a band twice called the In Out, who also has an interesting history. And the band was around totally 20 years, but I was in the band for eight collectively. And, we ended up the first time as in the band. We ended up we touring, touring a lot. We toured part of the U.S., part of Canada, and three weeks in Europe with seven of them. And we had developed an entire set of alternate versions <laughs> <laughs> of, of, our, of a lot of the songs we made. So we had one that we'd broken down as a sort of a dub version. We had another one that we played that we called Providence style, which was kind of like you know bananas and. Um, it was for fun, but it was, you know, yeah, it's to sort of break up the tedium. But you also sort of go into, like, again, back to Water on the Roxy, Roxy Music Tour, where not Roxy's crew, but sort of the Roxy organization felt like they were, they needed, they were having too much. Like the first time, I guess, the time they played, they played like 45 minutes, and they learned too much. The second time was 40, and then that's too much. But then they got, like, very little stage in, like, 30 minutes. So they, I'm sure you know this, like, they attempted then to cram their 45-minute set into 30 minutes. And they would play faster and faster and faster and faster. And then very last song, they would drop heartbeat at its rarely speed. And, uh, you know, listen to tapes from the tour, and it's pretty wild. I mean... That was that became their that became their mo and how they dealt with the team. It was like okay, how fast can we play the set tonight? How fast can we build up the rough that drops to heartbeat? How intense can we make heartbeat tonight? And that's always good too. And uh, Chris Gilbert says the way he got through the '88 tour was getting through the set to get the drill. And drill was kind of his relief, his relief. And um, you know this. To your average fan, this doesn't matter, and I don't blame them. It's boring. It's shop talk, but I mean, it's you know, it's interesting. But it, it you know, yeah, I think you can at least I can definitely respect what Ubu's doing. I just it's not for me, like you said, it's not for me. But I'm never going to tell anybody all this garbage. And right, I would still go see them if they came through and just played the new stuff because there are um, there are bands where I think. I think it was Nick Cave who last his last two albums were very different from anything I had heard from him, and I I didn't care for them the first time I heard them, but I went and saw them live, and now I love the albums because of how the performance went, and and I got a lot more out of it, and I was able to gain gain more kind of uh, um, trying to think of a uh, I kind of was able to digest the album through that experience, and now I love them both. So it can happen. I'm certainly what? wouldn't still go see those. Well, that's a great point, too, because if you think about um, bands who just don't translate on a record, um, I know them personally, so this might be a weird step, but I feel like Wussy's never been properly represented on a record. 
Yeah. Because to see them live is to like going is like going to church. Uh, the, the three times I've seen them, it's like being it's like going to see like Reverend Al Green, who I have seen uh, in his, in his uh, church, and um, it literally is like going to like a, a revival. I mean, the fans are insane. I mean, in a great way, but it's not blind hero worship. I mean, the music that they make is like mana for people. It's like it is a religious text that sustains them through this existence. And, and the only other time that I've really experienced that was when I saw the space lady. Yeah. And you'd think you were at a Slade concert in 73. <laughs> or Grand Funk, the way the audiences react. And Susan's a wonderful person. I'd actually met her when I was a kid when she played in San Francisco. I used to go see her, and I'd always talk to her. And she's always very sweet. So to see her again was wonderful. And she remembered me, which was really shocking. But the audience were just, the walls were shaking from the way they were screaming. And that is really something to, to behold, that an artist can do that for you. And I think that swings back to what we're saying about Peter uh, Lochner. And, you know, uh, there have been a handful of people who have questioned the release because of the sheer amount of covers or, you know, what's so special about this. And how do you say to somebody, it's like, first off, I'm a medium, right? I'm not, I'm not going to parade around on Peter's back and say, you know, uh, you know, oh, well, I did this because I, I'm just a medium and I'm just the stuff just passing through me. I'm just I'm just the messenger. You know, I'm not doing anything more than that. And that might be a weird stance. And some folks say, oh, don't say that. But I'm like, but it's true. And the, the efforts, the releases are team efforts. They would not happen without Frank, without Ilka from Fly, without uh, Sam Bosch. Uh, in the old days, it was Paul Hammond who did our master. Now it's Jeff and Maria Peerless. Uh, Ron Kretsch, who's our designer in the old days, it was John, John Thompson and Mark Schneider, who's my technical editor. God bless that man for his patience. Uh, these are team efforts. They wouldn't happen without them. And Andrew Ross, of course, is a major part of that, and he, he doesn't get in the spotlight. But, uh, you know, you can't. None of us are sitting here going, aren't we great? You know, and, and uh, another guy like that who I have just the utmost astounding respect for is uh, the gent from Dark Entry Records and what he's done on Patrick Cowley's back catalog. I'm not sure if you're familiar with that. No. Dark Entry right. Records I've heard, uh, but I don't know the, the you, catalog. I don't know if you've so much into I don't know if you've been in the music that they put out, but um do you know who Patrick Cowley was? No. He was San Francisco based. He was a musician and producer. He's he is credited with creating the form of, um, if you will, gay disco known as high energy, which okay. was a huge influence on the Pet Shop Boys, on Jimmy Somerville, um, Mark Allman to some degree. I mean, and and um, but he has a career stretching back to the early seventies as an electronic musician. He, I think he went to Mills College or he went to SF State. And he's also probably best known for work for co-producing and making the music on uh, "Do You Want to Funk" by Sylvester. And um, but Dark Entry started reissuing 
stuff and they were doing it so well that in a similar way, people don't back up. We're like, oh, uh, well, I've got tapes. I've got tapes. And it turned out Patrick had scored a bunch of uh, porn films. So those have come out because uh, it's all electronic stuff that he did in the early 70s. So, um, but then recently he got con the guy from the label got contacted by a guy who had like 40 reels. And again, Patrick died young, fairly young. He, he was one of the first probably well-known musicians who had died of complications related to AIDS. And in fact, I think him and Klaus Nomi died within days of each other. And a similar thing, his friends, his associates held on to what they had. And again, like Peter, it turns out that Patrick was constantly running tape. And it's music again that is still affecting people and he's gaining new fans, but he is this pivotal and important figure in that scene. Nothing else, you know, towards what he, again, what he did with Jimmy Summers and the Pet Shop Boys. I mean, it's, it's, it's crucial. And, these are folks who need to be recognized. I mean, I, I guess like the Attic got criticism over their Karen Dalton release because she did mostly covers, but she's another one, like much like Judy Sill, who's really important. And a fun fact about Karen Dalton is that she was roommates with Peach Marine in the early 70s. Oh, really? Yeah. Look up the uh, What's in My Bag with Peach Marine, and he talks about it. That's extraordinary. Okay. But, That's really But of course, uh, Tommy Chong was in. Yeah. So, well, I'm sorry. No, go no, go ahead, please. I'm sorry. No, no. No, because I love that Tommy Chung was in Bobby Taylor in the Vancouver's who were signed to Motown. I mean, that's also, you know, phenomenal. I did I think I think the song about the baby was Does Your Mother Know About Me, which is dirty. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, it's always fun to find out that people's origins are pretty genuine and pretty, you know, organic. Again, there's a word, but uh much like, you know, we're talking about Ryan Walsh. I mean, the guy really did cut his teeth. He's not somebody who sits in an ivory tower and goes, I think I'd like to write about Van Morrison today. And, yeah, I, you know. Or, I was impressed. If you if you have contact with him, tell him that he, I don't know if he'll care, but he, I thought he did a great job. Um, I'm very, very happy I bought that book. And I've had a made, I've bought it for other people several times. You should invite him to come on the show because he's a very nice guy and he's very down to earth and he's been very gracious about the retention. He has gone to his head, if you will. I just can't wait to find out what he's going to do next. I'm hoping he'll do another thing on Boston. Um, but I don't, you know, people care about Van Morrison. I don't know if people care about long gone Boston bands that are, aren't very well known, but, um, I would love you know, to read it. Like I, I, <laughs> any music book by someone who I appreciate as a writer, I don't care what they're writing about. I'm gonna, you know, if they're a good writer, I'll I will enjoy it. Oh, I, Jimmy McDonough could write about uh, Jimmy McDonough could write about Lawrence Welk, and I'd read it. <laughs> uh, I mean, Jimmy McDonough's books on Neil Young and Tammy Wynette are astounding. I do you know those? Have you read those books? Uh, the, Shaky is the Neil Young one. The sh yeah, that um, I don't know the Tammy Wynette one though. Um, it's it's this amazing story. It's he her story, Russ but Meyer? it's also. Did he do a Russ Meyer one too? He may have. I know he did one on this really bizarre filmmaker from New York who was like making not B movies but like Z movies, and um, 
McDonough is McDonough is one of the few writers that I'm aware of who can tell his, have him be part his own self be part of the story, and it not only works but you're on, you're in the car with him, you're walking with him, you're talking with him. Barbara Iron I mentioned her before. Barbara Ironrock can do that. Gina Arnold can do it. Um, but it's so hard to do, and when other people yeah. do it. A lot of folks who don't know how to do it, you know, you end up, you know, F you, you know, I want to read about your subject. I don't want to read about you. I don't care. I don't care if, you know, <laughs> you shit your parents on the way there. I don't care. Um, but it's, it's, Lester Banks does it well, as does Peter Lechner. They both do it well. Uh, you know, if you choose to go, if you choose, choose to go, it's probably one of the single greatest pieces of rock and roll writing of the 20th century. Uh, and, yeah, you read about Peter, but he makes you care, and I think that's the key, you know. And it's very hard to do, but it was a, you know, I don't think I think in some ways we didn't just lose a musician, but we lost a great writer. And I do argue the point that I think Peter was actually better than Les Banks in the way he was sort of able to connect with the reader. At least from my perspective, I think Peter was maybe better at connecting with the reader. Les is like a guy you meet at a party, and he tells you a story while you're standing there. Peter sits down with you, says, "Oh man, let me, let me. Oh yeah, man, I'll tell you. Okay, if you're the new modern lovers, right? <laughs> I'll tell you. I seem you like know, yeah. Pete, Peter would be more likely to be, or from what I can gather, ad lib one of those, or just kind of off the cuff." And it would come out just as beautifully. Whereas I think Lester Banks, as much as it appears that he's kind of doing it off the cuff, I think he actually did revise more, edit more than than people would probably realize. Yeah, and I think, I mean, it's you know, it's ridiculous to do analysis of like folks who were long gone from this place, and you're going by what again that again here we are again with that quick persona and what put out there the public and we're not dealing with private and sometimes the private is irrelevant to the public and um you know maybe you want to say like again and here is this again like lester being raised a jehovah's witness might have you know informed uh some of what he did later i mean you, you, of course yeah right, it, it can't not but to make assumptions without talking to anybody about how much that may have played in. And I'm not talking about Jim, Jim David Gordis' book here. Not at all. I'm just speaking in general. It is ridiculous. I mean, you know, was Seth Putnam a, a wild man because he was a good Catholic boy? I don't know. Uh, I don't know. I don't know. He was a good Catholic boy, loved his mother, and uh, his mother had a master's degree in anthropology. So, I mean, you know, who knows? Uh, Darby Crash was a was a rich kid apparently, but he didn't act like one. So you know, who knows? But um, we've been talking for over two hours, so I should probably yeah. ask you if you have any final question for me. <laughs> no, and uh, um, no, I I've gotten everything that that, and obviously a lot more than we were, um, <laughs> and even we had hoped we would get. This has just been so wonderful. I hope I hope it wasn't too much of no up your your time, but. Of all the stuff that Go you ahead. guys found, what was what was the best thing that like what's the what's your pa favorite Peter Lochner original that you had not heard until until you started putting this together? If that makes sense. Mm, 
Either that really brief instrumental that's at the um, that's on the 45 that comes from the mystery tape, or yeah, I must have been out of my mind, which is from the mystery tape. My uh, favorite Peter Lochner original of all time is uh, down at the bar, aka in the bar. Uh, both titles are correct. Um, I had never heard the version that the box set until we started doing this. That tape came from Robert Kinsick. Uh, first time I heard that and Deb Smith's bass kicked in, I began sobbing uncontrollably because I loved Deb's playing. And again, it was another one of those moments where, you know, you just don't expect to be affected by the music. And that's the, the problem with getting deeply involved with this shit is because you become emotionally affected by it. I mean, I'm not a Vulcan. I'm, I'm half Danish. So the drama comes with it. And, um, you know, it's, it, it, to find a tape that you didn't even know existed is really, that can be a bit much. Thank and, you. And thank much. everybody, um, for getting this box set put out. It's amazing. I cannot stop listening to it. I love it. All right. I'll talk to you soon. All right. Take care. One of the first songs that ever completely invaded my whole being was 30 Seconds Over Tokyo. My brother played it for me when I was maybe 12 or 13, and I've never looked back. It's a song that's never had an equal. Not the best song ever, but there's no other song that comes even close to accomplishing what that song does. It has the perfect sound, perfect pace, perfect instruments played at the perfect time, perfect singer and perfect lyrics, and was co-written by... Peter Lochner. The first CD I ever purchased was Per Ubu's Terminal Tower, and I played the first three tracks on that collection until the CD turned to mush. On that CD, 30 Seconds is sandwiched between two other reasons that Per Ubu is one of the finest bands of all time, Heart of Darkness and Final Solution. Final Solution has the absolute best studio guitar work of Lochner's brief career. I think I was amazed as going through the Smogville collection is like how wide of influences he had. And he was such a good guitarist and whatever he played, I mean, it really is pretty incredible that he, he could synthesize all his influences. I don't think most people can do that as well as he did. No, it's great. And he could just go from style to style, whatever he felt like playing at the time, or maybe whatever would earn a paycheck, <laughs> but it was, you go from the, blues rock to punk to new wave to whatever whatever he felt like playing it was even the stuff that sounds like he's emulating bob dylan it's perfect and uh, i think one of the the most um fun things for me as i was going through the the interview with nick was the process of getting all those tapes and cutting them down and what just thinking about what that must be like to like totally give yourself to a project like that and you have, you know, this limited amount of time to totally represent somebody who, who may never get another release like this ever. The, the kind of the power of, of that. It was pretty compelling. It seemed like a job that I could, I could love. <laughs> it's an incredibly important endeavor. And I don't know why you were so quiet during that interview, but... <laughs> <laughs> I think everything I said, you just cut out. <laughs> You should probably do that for most episodes. <laughs> so one of the things I kind of found fascinating about it, I started thinking about 
was what it would be like to be that archivist who got to like sit down and pick the the five records worth of music from somebody who may have a vast collection and how cool, how fun that would be. And so I was thinking like, is there anybody that you could think of that is kind of deserving of this treatment or who you would actually like to be the archivist of? The issue would be like, I never had any idea Peter Lochner had so much out there, mm. but if there are, as far as people that I think would be fun to find out. And I think like, Blaze Foley, there was a documentary about him not that long ago, and there seemed to be albums just sort of popping up every couple of years of like live recordings and home tapes and stuff. And I bet it seems to me that he was a, a similar character, incredibly right. bright, really good writer, and kind of hard to be around sometimes. Yeah, yeah, definitely. What about you? The one person I was thinking of when I was thinking about this is Abner J. And there has been a few compilations out and but he has a ton of recordings and they were mostly self-published and there's they're real rare and hard but I think there'd be enough tapes and enough recordings of him where somebody really took the time to do it right and really detailed and and really made a great job of it sort of like they did with Lochner I think Abner J box set would be amazing I wonder if Mississippi has a lot of those tapes because they've put out a couple compilations and a like a 45, I think. Yeah, they, uh, they've, they and I mean, those compilations are wonderful, but I think he has something like, at some point I want to do a whole episode on him. I know we talked about him before. Mm-hmm. I would like to research enough to do a whole episode, but I think he has like something ridiculous, like 40 albums or something. Now, some of them might be on tape oh, wow. or something. Okay. Some of them might be self-distributed CDs, but he's got a ton of, ton of music. Jeffrey Lee Pierce might be close. He had a lot more released than Lochner or and recorded than Lochner, Foley, Abner J. But he's probably there's probably some recordings out there. I would imagine It'd be fun to go through those. Mm-hmm. I wonder if Chris Bell has a bunch of home recordings. Alex Chilton probably does. <laughs> Too many. <laughs> that would be like twenty five LPs probably. <laughs> It'd be like. The Columbia House thing where they send you all of them and you have to send back the ones you don't want or you end up paying for them. (laughs) (laughs) First one's a penny. (laughs) What about, we've talked about him before, also Angus McLeese. I don't know whether I would want to sit through that and go through that, but he's got, probably has a lot of interesting stuff. I want to say his widow or maybe that one of the schools he went to donated a whole suitcase of stuff they found to Buhara. And so they're putting out stuff little by little. But if somebody went out, he's got so much weird writing and so much stuff, but he was a prolific recorder. Um, you probably could do a wonderful uh, retrospective on him Yeah, that would people would buy. He's an interesting guy and very similar in vain to these, to Blaze Foley and Peter Lochner, where very important to the scene and on the fringes of, of really important stuff, but never really popular himself. Right, and temperamental, and people loved being around him, but for a limited period of time. Right, right. Yeah. If anybody out there can think of other other people we're missing, because clearly we're missing others, like Skip Spence or something, but that seems like it's been done, and who knows if there's any, even anything out there. But yeah. think if you think of anything, just let us know. I'd like to hear some more. I'm sure somebody's got some good ideas. That would be... That'd be a fun thing to to look into. Yeah, definitely. 
Well, I guess we should kind of kind of get on. We we need to say uh, thank you to Nick. There's a lot more stuff, a lot more great stories. We had to cut out a little bit for time, and we we kept it as long as we could because there was so much good stuff. But we cut out some things. But um, such an interesting guy. I wasn't at the interview. You probably noticed, but um, I loved listening to it and it was just kind of fun to hear the stories unfold and and really a fascinating project yeah i'm hoping he can come on the show and actually maybe co-host a show with us rather than in interview format where he can present a turntable talk himself it's he's a really fun person to to hear speak yeah that would be that would be awesome yeah super smart uh really articulate good he's just a nice guy yeah, so thank you. Thank you for his time and his support. And and, and to everyone at Smogvale Records. Oh, yes. Great job. And you probably should go ahead and pick it up if you haven't. I think we touched on it that they may not do another pressing because it was such a, a daunting pressing to begin with. So if you want one, I would go ahead and try to find one pretty soon. It's absolutely outstanding. It's beautiful. Just everything, the way it was all put together, the liner notes is it's its own coffee table book. Everything is just couldn't have been done with more care and thought. What about social media? We got any social media? Yeah, we have Twitter and Instagram, Facebook. I think on Twitter and Instagram, our handle is at Highway High Five Pod. Facebook, we're very easy to find. You can email us at Highway High Five Podcast at gmail.com. And we're also part of the Pantheon group now. And in our show notes, there's a link to their site where you can find all the other great podcasts that are all music related. So please go visit Pantheon. Listen to some other listen to some other shows. There's some great ones. Our friend Morris's um, Love That Album is part of the network, and those are a lot of fun. I really like the Rock, rock and Roll Librarian. Yep. Yeah, she's great. Really, anything you listen to is pretty great. It's fun to listen to people who love music as much as we do. Absolutely. And uh, as always, please go out and buy some records, go to a live show, just support something that has to do with money this week. Go grab that Peter Lochner box set before it's gone. It's worth it. But yeah, get help some people who deserve it out. Yeah, I think that's about it. We will see you next time. <laughs> <laughs>